Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. And thanks to all of you who donated to W-A-B-E during our fall fundraiser, as well as those of you whose monthly and ongoing contributions enable us to bring you the programming you enjoy. I appreciate your commitment to WABE. Later this hour, we'll hear from the Georgia-born soprano Jasmine Habersham. The rising opera star will perform at Morningside Presbyterian Church this Saturday. She'll tell us about her varied program and exciting performances she'll give in the near future. Plus, speaking of the arts, our series highlighting local artists in their own words, today featuring photographer Kimara Dixon. First, although the cultural phenomenon of hip-hop is associated with music, hip-hop is an entire culture defined by four basic elements— DJing, MCing, b-boying, and graffiti art. Now another element has been added, hip-hop architecture. The exhibition Close to the Edge, The Birth of Hip-Hop Architecture, explores that new element, and the show is on view through January at Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta. Joining me now is the director of the Master of Urban Design program at UNC Charlotte and curator of this exhibition at Moda, Sekou Cook. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. As am I. You define hip-hop architecture as an approach to contemporary design that embraces hip-hop culture and applies its shape, structure, and ideologies to the built environment. How do those musical and performative elements translate to architecture 
which is visual and doesn't take place in time. Yeah, so actually the definition of hip-hop architecture is something that I've resisted for quite a number of years because defining hip-hop architecture goes against even defining hip-hop. You know, hip-hop was a phenomenon that existed about for about 10 years before it was even defined. Between the early 70s and the early 80s, hip-hop had a really amazing underground life before anyone knew what it was. And then when it really became recorded and on the scene, then it had already changed and become something different. So I imagine a similar life for hip-hop architecture where it resists definition for a while and then people start to understand, oh, this is how hip-hop culture actually shapes the environment. So I'd like to talk about hip-hop as a culture, a cultural phenomenon that's not just music. Um, at the top, you talked about all the different four elements and there's several other elements of hip-hop culture, including fashion, literature, theater, and all of those things share a certain, a certain root, a certain attitude, a certain way of approaching that I imagine is, is just as easily translatable into architecture. So most of what I like to talk about with hip-hop architecture is can we find the identity of people who are influenced by hip-hop culture and can we bring that to the built environment and can we shape our cities, our buildings, our streetscapes using the same attitudes that hip-hop has had for the last 50 years in reshaping the musical industry, the dance industry, the DJing performance industry. You know, some of that is temporal, some of that is time-based, and I think architecture can definitely incorporate things that are temporary and that are permanent or things that have operate on multiple timescales. Can you give us a visual description of something that is an excellent representation of hip-hop sensibility, if you will? Yeah, well, here in Charlotte, where I'm at, there's this great space called Camp North End. And Camp is an area of the city that was a, a bunch of warehouses, a big industrial space. And over the last few years, it's been developed into an art space, a performance space, a retail space, office spaces, and it's lively and varied and transitional. And anybody who's been to Camp North End has experienced some things, a few things that are familiar to them, like going to a restaurant and ordering food, but a few things that are unfamiliar, like occupying an old warehouse space in a way that they didn't expect to before, or walking across train lines that used to be used for shipping goods and are now part of a public walkway promenade. And this has a lot to do with giving over a lot of that space to artists and having some of those, the wall surfaces, the, the spaces change over time, 
events come in and transform the space for a temporary period of time. People use it in different ways over different timescales. The whole environment is incredibly lively and transformative. Hmm. I read that you have both a bachelor's and a master's degree in architecture from elite schools, <laughs> Ivy League schools. And in yes. fact, you're currently a fellow at Harvard as well, aren't you? Correct. Well, last year I had a fellowship at Harvard that's named after Nazir Jones, who most people know as the, the rapper Nas. And this was a fellowship that he set up at the Hutchins Center. The Hutchins Center is run by Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. And it's a center for research on African and African-American studies. And so that hip-hop fellowship was something that I, I was really privileged enough to be a part of last year. You know, we we're still under COVID rules, so most of it was virtual, online. Luckily, I didn't have to travel to Boston every every couple of weeks, but it was it was a great experience. And ah. yeah, it's I, I am pretty proud of the fact that I was privileged enough to attend two Ivy League universities, Cornell and Harvard, and that has influenced a lot of the ways that I that I think and I write, and it gives you access to a lot of resources that most people don't have. They also represent a structure and a system that I work in in my daily life to subvert in one way or another, to try to ask different questions and change the conversation and, and provide many, many more people access to similar levels of, of resources. What drew you to study design and architecture? Um, it's really interesting, Lois. I was, I was one of those kids who knew I wanted to be an architect when I was five years old. And before I even knew what architecture was, I was a kid growing up in Jamaica and I loved to draw. I was also one of those kids who took my toys apart so that I could see how they worked. Uh-huh. I, I destroyed a lot of things in my parents' <laughs> homes. Uh, you were doing research. Doing research. That's exactly what I called it, was research. But it led me to a career where I, I wanted to use my eyes and my hands, and I wanted to understand how everything is made from furniture to buildings to cities. I want to know how they're put together, how they work inside out. And more recently, over the last few years, I'm much more interested in how the environment shapes culture and how culture can shape environments. So a lot of that is has been reciprocal in my education, in my teaching, and especially in my practice, where now in my professional work, a lot of it is grounded in the same kinds of cultural identity making practice that has been showing up in my research for the last few years. I respect that you resist a definition of hip-hop architecture, as you said. Is it possible for you to tell us about your approach to design and how that is influenced by hip-hop? Of course, yes. So I was 
having a conversation just earlier today with Gerald Cooper, who most people know as um, Coop. He runs the Instagram handle Hood Century Modern, which has you know, 60,000 followers and has been really influential over the last couple of years and how people think about architecture and design. And we were talking about how hip hop is the dominant cultural force in the world today, how almost everything in the world in one way or another is influenced by hip hop culture. But then what is the marker of that influence? Is it just influencing popular culture, just influencing the way that people talk, the way that people dress, the music that people listen to? But where I want to see hip-hop culture affect the world is in reshaping the built environment. You know, I was in Cairo just a couple of weeks ago, and Cairo is a city that has been shaped and reshaped over millennia literally, and has had so many different areas of the city. And you can tell what the dominant cultural influence of each era was, you know, was it the Arabesque influence or was it the Romanesque influence or was it the French influence of different areas of the city or the modernist city or the postmodernist part of the city? I think the success of hip hop architecture will be if a hundred years from now, we can look back at our cities and say, this is the area that represents the era of time when hip hop was the dominant cultural force. So can we see an entire section of a city be reshaped by this culture? You know, we're, we're trying to find spaces that reflect cultural identity in the city um, we're trying to do this thing called placemaking all the time. And placemaking, by my understanding, is really just having events in a certain space where people identify and feel like they belong. But that doesn't have to be completely temporary. It can actually be something that shapes the full environment. So the work that I've been doing currently has been working with public agencies, with nonprofit organizations, with community-based practices that are looking at different ways of, of challenging the typical ways that architects or designers work with clients. So I'm working with the Washington, D.C. Housing Authority to find real creative public uses for old public housing projects before they get demolished and changed into new mixed-use housing. And then I'm working with an organization here that's a public a performing arts organization here in Charlotte to look at a new performing arts center along a very influential corridor for Black culture here in Charlotte and seeing how it's not just a singular building, but something that can integrate itself into the fabric of the city and actually transform that whole streetscape. And I'm working with an organization in Syracuse to create a first of its kind hip hop headquarters where different organizations that forefront hip hop culture as a way of dealing with, with at-risk youth 
can have space for performances, for galleries, for recording spaces to incubate different businesses that they come up with and a really amazing general use public space that's based on the same concepts that we've been developing within hip hop architecture. So if I understand correctly, you are much more involved with how a space, a building, a place will be used. More of a social planner. <laughs> I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. I think I, I love that term social planner. I've never thought about that term before or thought about my work in that way. But yes, and ideally, I believe architects or architecture in general should be operating in that way, that we all should be social planners, social engineers, looking at the way that people actually use space and actually exist within the city and enhancing it in certain ways, amplifying it in some ways, turning it up or turning it down in different ways. We can imagine an equalizer board or a soundboard with all the various aspects or characteristics of how people operate within the city and turning some of those up and turning some of those down. And I think that's a very, very different attitude than saying, I'm a master planner, I'm a creative genius, and I know exactly what this thing is supposed to be, and I know how people are supposed to live. Here's this thing that I've created, and now you have to conform to how it's been designed. And that's a very, very, you know, we use the, the terms top down and bottom up quite a lot, but it's much more connected to like a colonialist mentality of, of ownership, of imposing will, imposing order. And I think the world has moved on from that, especially us questioning the nature of colonialism for the last three years has started to challenge a lot of that. And so I'm happy to operate in that space in my practice. I'm happy to operate in that space as an architect. And I do it as a model for other architects to, to work exactly in that way. Oh, that is enlightening. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, how not just autocratic, I guess authoritarian, those rock star architects <laughs> of the 20th century were not only creating these structures, but saying, this is how you should live. And then, of course, when you are dealing with dynamic neighborhoods, it's all the more complicated about dictating. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Seku Cook, curator of Close to the Edge, The Birth of Hip-Hop Architecture. The exhibition is on view now at MoDA, the Museum of Design Atlanta. Now, what inspired the title of the exhibition, Close to the Edge? Well, Close to the Edge is an excerpt from a very famous hip-hop lyric from the song The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And it's a, a very popular line from Melly Mel, who's the one of the MCs for that group, where he says, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. 
I'm trying not to lose my head. And I think anybody who knows anything about hip hop culture knows that, that line. And so I like to quote hip hop lyrics in many ways because encapsulated within them is a lot of wisdom and knowledge and a kind of academic theory without it being heavy theory. You know, people call them poets quite a lot. And so when I'm trying to find titles, when I'm trying to find thoughts to wrap my head around or to communicate with different people, I often go to hip hop lyrics. And that one, especially the message is about the way that people lived, the way that people occupied buildings. You know, it starts out with a great line about broken glass everywhere and talking about the real conditions that people are living in, in the South Bronx and in New York City in the late 70s and early 80s. And then the double entendre there, the close to the edge was about this movement, hip hop architecture is on the brink of becoming a dominant force within the architecture and design world. To that point, the musical point, the graffiti in the show quotes songs that comment on hip-hop architecture. Would you name a few of those songs for us? Yeah, so there's a message, of course. There is The Corner by Common that talks about the corner as this really important place in the Black community where a lot of theory and knowledge has been formed, but it's an important space in the city and is an important place in the community. There are lyrics from Childish Gambino talking about his architects, knows Japanese. There's lyrics from Kanye West and Kid Cudi, their collaboration that they did called Kid See Ghosts, where they're talking about Herzog and Demeron, who are famous architects who, who are in Switzerland and how the, the buildings that they design. There are quotes from Jay-Z and Nas talking about different, Zaha Hadid or talking about Virgil Abloh or talking about different architectural styles. There is a quote from Riza, who was from the Wu-Tang Clan, where he has a, a line about supreme architecture, a whole track that's about architecture as the supreme way of seeing the world. Lupe Fiasco did a song called Form Follows Function. Architecture has been in the psyche of the rap artists for, for decades. And they've been talking about either the built environment, talking about spaces and places that are important to them in their culture, or more currently, they've been talking about specific architecture and architects as, as something that they should know, just like people know fashion designers as really great markers or indicators of hip-hop culture. Sekou, this may go back to the authoritarian or colonialist architect. How do white supremacy and hegemonic whiteness show up in architecture and design spaces? So it's a kind of standard practice that's so clear and obvious that it's hard for us to even recognize anymore. I think most people who know anything about architecture or don't know anything about architecture at all 
when you say the word architecture, they probably first imagine a neoclassical building somewhere in a government center, a source of power like the Capitol building or the White House. And most of those were designed as replicas of, of classical architecture, which were replicas of Greek or Roman temples. And so there is this idea of a singular lineage of architecture that comes from a very Western standpoint that starts somewhere in Greece, goes through Rome, has a renaissance somewhere in Europe, France, maybe, maybe England, and then is transplanted in the U.S. That singular understanding or singular definition of architecture is inherently Western, European, white, and colonial in its mindset. And of course, we use it as our symbols of power all the time, our banks, our courthouses, and our seats of government. So when people think about architecture as a default, that's what they rely on for their primary images. There was a decree, one of the last decrees by our former president was for all, all municipal buildings to be designed in a classical style. So there was a style edict by a sitting president on how people should design publicly commissioned work. And that is incredibly narrow in its focus, incredibly Western in its ideology, and incredibly white supremacist, because it doesn't leave any room for any other cultures to express themselves, any other room for anyone else to be a part of government created buildings or structures, or for them to represent the culture of anybody else. Um, if it were up to me, I would say all contemporary buildings should be reflecting contemporary culture and not referencing any other past culture unless they're sampling them and commenting on them in one way or another. And then people feel more included in the conversation. They feel like architecture actually represents them. And then you start to get a trickle-down effect where people start to believe that architecture can actually come from them and that then the practice itself starts to get a lot more inclusive and stops looking as commonly as old white men with white hair and black glasses. Right? So this essentially is what hip-hop architecture is changing. Would that be correct? Yeah, it's one way in. It's a way that is first off recognizing the dominant culture of our times, whether or not people like hip-hop music or agree with any hip-hop philosophies. If you're looking for a singular cultural phenomenon that is pervasive throughout our contemporary world, it all leads back to hip-hop. So acknowledging that, that gives us a, a road for how to approach design, how to approach shaping built environments, how to approach creating cities, how to approach creating spaces, especially public spaces for, for people. And 
a lot of it is incredibly inclusive. It's egalitarian. It, it, it is democratic. And it, it's also incredibly innovative because it is mostly things that we haven't seen before and things that we don't know even how to imagine what they look like. Most of the work that's in the exhibition at MODA is work that doesn't look like the work that's beside it. So it's not a singular style. People are constantly trying to define it as a style, but it's not a style at all. It's a movement. It's a way of approaching design that can look like almost anything. But as long as it has the same, the same attitude behind it, the same motivations and intentions behind it, and it goes through a similar process of, of challenging the norms, then I think it can enter the conversation as hip-hop architecture. Seku Cook is the curator of Close to the Edge, the birth of hip-hop architecture. The exhibition is on view at MODA, the Museum of Design Atlanta, through January of next year. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, soprano Jasmine Habersham will tell us about her upcoming recital at Morningside Presbyterian Church. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Soprano Jasmine Habersham is a rising star in the younger generation of opera singers. Her voice has been lauded as exquisite by Broadway World. She's acclaimed for having a well-controlled silvery tone by Opera Today. Ms. Habersham will perform a recital at Morningside Presbyterian Church Saturday evening at 7. She joins us now via Zoom with Dr. Jonathan Crutchfield, the organist and choir master of Morningside Presbyterian. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Jasmine, we last spoke when you performed the role of Cleopatra in Atlanta Opera's Julius Caesar. Yes. We were talking a lot about the 
drama and the role itself. It's so good to talk with you again and now to ask a bit about your background. I read that you grew up in a musical household. Please tell us about your path to an opera career. Yes, so my path to singing you know, again, like you said, I grew up in a very, very musical family, mainly around gospel and jazz. And, and um, my parents introduced me to a lot of different styles of music. Um, it wasn't until I was in high school that I was introduced to classical singing and, and opera. There was this amazing fine arts camp in Macon, Georgia called Midsummer Macon. And it was this uh, summer intensive camp that lasted about two weeks. And some of the best years of my formative life, because that is where I kind of, and actually that is where I literally found my voice. I started out doing piano there, but then soon after I kind of realized like, oh, I maybe want to like try singing. So I actually saw a recital by Rita Davis. She did a voice recital and I was like, wow, that's like really, really cool and interesting. And, and I was like, that, I think that might be something that I would definitely be interested in doing. So I started taking the voice lessons there and that is kind of where me falling in love with singing kind of emerged. From there, I started taking voice lessons with Nadine Whitney, who was a professor at Wesleyan College. And I found my discovery of my love for singing when I heard Audra McDonald and her album, Way Back to Paradise. And one of the very first songs on that album was Ricky Ian Gordon's Dream Variations, which is actually, I will be singing on the recital. And that is one of the very few moments that I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this thing called singing. And that's when that complete like love affair started. From there, I started taking voice lessons with Nadine Whitney at Wesleyan College. She suggested that I apply to college for voice. So I ended up going to Shorter University for my undergraduate degree. And then for my graduate degree, I went to the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music in Cincinnati, Ohio. And that's where things kind of emerge from there. But that's a little bit about my background. It's, it's you know, not exactly typical, but I was inspired by different forces. Oh, well, it, the more the better. Yeah. One of the proud graduates of Shorter College was mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton, another Georgia opera star. Yes. And, uh, you know, she said she grew up with hippie parents and she listened to bluegrass and knew she wanted to sing when she saw Peter Pan on television. Oh, wow. So <laughs> the road to opera can take many directions. Yes. 
in addition to your roles in opera, which have been substantial, you've performed as a featured soloist in numerous concerts of major works with symphony orchestras. This will be a solo recital Saturday evening. Is there a difference in the way you approach solo repertoire? Yes. So I have to say when singing opera, you know, you kind of have a team around you, if that makes sense, where you can go off of um, your other castmates. There's so many other things kind of supporting you. Whereas in a solo recital, it's, it's much different. It's much more intimate. And I, you know, have to think of all these little different characters and different emotions within each song that I do. So for me, uh, it is extremely much more intimate and vulnerable place to be when it comes to song recitals, which makes it so exciting because I feel like that's such a, a, an amazing way to connect with an audience when it's just you and the piano and an audience and you feel that synergy happening. You know, I, it happens in opera as well, but I just sometimes feel like it's a much stronger pool because like you have to be extremely vulnerable when it comes to song. I think it takes a lot more work actually than opera because opera is already so grand. You have the orchestra, you have sets, you have, again, you know, all these different uh, elements that make it huge. And yet this is completely stripped of that, but it's, it's much more collaborative as well. Well, it's fascinating to hear you describe this because certainly from the audience point of view, it is indeed an intimate experience. We are close to the performer, but what you describe about being so completely exposed in your art form is important to note and also it attests to your professionalism. I mean, you're still talking about being in character when you're singing songs. Yes, oh, completely. There are certain, you know, journeys that I think, you know, good songs take that there's this journey of, or at least as a singer, I have to create that journey of the song and, and create those pictures and elements myself. Very much the same way that I would with opera, but it's just the song. Mm. I don't have any other character interaction to go off of. So it's it, at least it's very vital for me to make sure that I do create that artistic journey so it's understandable. And what's so beautiful about it too is like, there's so many layers you can go with that and so many different types of emotions that you can put in song. Mm. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is soprano Jasmine Habersham. The rising opera star will perform at Morningside Presbyterian Church this Saturday. You mentioned Audra McDonald, such a stunning artist. Not only her voice, but as an actor as well. And you mentioned uh, her performing the Dream Variations, Ricky and Garden. You perform across genres. What selections will you sing at this upcoming recital? So I will be singing a few arias, some Mozart 
arias, well, uh, particularly two Handel arias, a Mozart aria, and also a Rossini aria. Um, these are things that I have been singing for a couple of years. some things that are new that I actually wanted to kind of give myself a challenge on technically. But some of the songs that I will be singing are some of the Ricky and Gordon songs from Only Heaven. So those include Dream Variations, Heaven. which is a very, um, such a oh, incredible, incredible song. Those are some of the notable songs that are on the program. Um, and all of them are by Langston Hughes. So it's, you know, Ricky and Gordon does an excellent job of setting his text in a really beautiful way. And much of his music has that very crossover jazz musical theater, you know, that kind of like art song mixed in one. And that's why it's a, I'm attracted to it so much. So I really excited about that set of, of the program. And then I'm also doing some songs from Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein. Actually, these are some of um, his most notable works like Greenfinch and Leonard Bird, Somewhere and I Feel Pretty. I wanted to pay homage to Sondheim, especially since we lost him last year. Again, something that's really vulnerable about this recital. These are the pieces that, you know, I used to sing in my room as a young girl and, and like most people, I guess they would do that. They would sing in their room and, and, but it was my really creative place that I felt like I could, you know, dance or sing while no one was watching. And these are those pieces that kind of meant the most to me during that time. And so I wanted to, Again, pay homage to him and um, the contribution of his influence on American music. And then I also have a spiritual by Hall Johnson, including also the John Carter, one of the pieces from the John Carter Cantata, which is so exciting. And it features, of course, some of the Black composers that I'm very, very fond of. Such as? Uh, well, Hall Johnson, I'm yes. fond of, yes, of Hall Johnson's work. He does spirituals. I, and I believe he's from Augusta, Georgia. He basically is like the standard person. Like you have, of course, like H.T. Burley, but Hall Johnson is another one that I'm very fond of. And also John Carter. This was his only set of music that he composed, but uh, it's pretty notable. And it's like a very eclectic mix of kind of like Irish song and spirituals. So it's, it's a super exciting piece that I think people will love. Wow. 
a wide range of repertoire. Jonathan Crutchfield. Jasmine's recital is part of the Nancy Frampton Rising Artist series, which you co-founded. First, please tell us, who was Nancy Frampton? Well, Nancy passed away a few years ago, unfortunately, and we miss her greatly. She is the wife of uh, Mac Frampton, a concert pianist here in Atlanta, and both are and were members of uh, Morningside Presbyterian Church. Nancy uh, was a wonderful lover of art and of music, of anything that struck the soul in a deep place. And she just lit up the room when she walked in. When she passed away, we had been searching for the right venue, the right person to call a a music series by their name and Nancy fit the bill wonderfully. So Mac said, yes, absolutely. That is a great tribute to Nancy and to her love of all things musical and all things artistic. Why does Morningside Presbyterian feel it important to bring the next generation of classical music artists to perform there? Well, I think that one of the things that churches do well, in addition to the academic circles, is to promote the next generation of artists. It's been a passion of mine for many years to create the spaces for the next generation to find their voice, to learn more about their craft, to bring their gifts to the audience in a manner that doesn't have too much stress, hopefully. I believe that our small, intimate space uh, is perfect for that. It's one of the the best-kept secrets, I think. In Atlanta, the room is, is just fantastic for music, and we love hearing and exploring the gifts that uh, the young artists and uh, some of the older artists as well uh, can bring to us. Now, you are an organist and pianist as well as a choral conductor. Which instrument will you play in Jasmine's recital? Well, I will be accompanying her on the piano this time. Okay, so the handle is also piano. That's correct. Okay. Well, Jasmine, can you tell us what's next in your musical journey? Yes. So I have a lot of <laughs> a lot of exciting things coming up. In November, I will be singing with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. I will be doing the Brahms Requiem as a soprano soloist and also doing a world premiere of Derek Sky. His piece is called A Rage of Peace. Also, I will be doing uh, the Christmas Pops concerts with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. After that, and I'm really excited about this gig, I will be singing the role of Sophie and Verter at Houston Grand Opera. I will be singing with Isabel Leonard and Matthew Polizzani, so I, and I'm so thrilled. 
And also after that, I'll be singing Gilda and Rigoletto with Utah Opera. And I'm even more excited about this debut. I will be singing Susanna and Le Nozze di Figaro at Madison Opera in Wisconsin. Georgia native, Jasmine Habersham solo recital in Atlanta is part of the Nancy Frampton Rising Artists series and takes place Saturday, October 29th at 7 p.m. at Morningside Presbyterian Church. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, speaking of the arts, our series highlighting local artists, today features photographer Kimara Dixon. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Kimara. I am a photographer. I mostly photograph people a lot of dance and a lot of photographs of the African diaspora. I guess art was something that was always present in my home. You pretty much were expected to participate in some form of art. Photography came through my aunt's boyfriend who introduced us to chess and introduced me to photography. And from there, I took over my dad's camera which was an old Nikon F2, and to this day I still use the same lens, an old 50-1.4. I'm pretty much inspired by people and uh, nature and other artists in, in particular. A lot of dancers, a lot of my work features dancers, just people. I'm very uh, curious about people, I like observing people, and Photography gives me an excuse to do that. <laughs> Atlanta has influenced my art, I'd say mainly because of where it's situated. It has allowed me to travel to other parts of the South pretty easily. You know, I can just go down to New Orleans and photograph the Mardi Gras Indians. I can go to Mississippi and photograph the blues musicians and blues festivals. I can go down to Florida, Miami and photograph folks. So Atlanta is pretty well situated for uh, someone who wants to photograph the South. Atlanta itself also has a lot of, uh, you know, very interesting culture. A lot of great festivals, a lot of amazing folks. I don't really go see much art in the city per se, but I do go to events in order to observe uh, people and to photograph people. I go to the Malcolm X Festival. I go to the House in the Park Festival where they dance to house music. So there are a lot of great down-to-earth grassroots events here in Atlanta, which are perfect for, for my photography. The best place to view my work would be at my website, which is alankimaradixon.com. 
facebook.com or at lighttablebooks.com. Photographer Kimara Dixon and our series, Speaking of the Arts. More information about Dixon's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the next installment in our series, Cheers, a toast to Atlanta's oldest watering holes. We'll feature Buckhead's 43-year-old dance hall, Johnny's Hideaway. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier story about Moda's new exhibition, Close to the Edge, the Birth of Hip-Hop Architecture, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find a complete archive of our stories, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.